welcome to Small Town Mysteries, a show where three longtime friends from Massachusetts tell crazy and heartbreaking true stories filled with the extra flair of small town mystery. I'm Kate, here with Christine. Hello. And Rachel. Hello. Bringing you our next episode on Kathy Malcolmson and Sarah Pryor. But before we get into that, I'm going to toss it over to Rachel, who will be covering our missing person for this week. Rachel? All right. So today I'm actually covering two missing people. Kalani Gomez, age one, and Kayani Gomez, two months old. No. I know. I know. Kalani and Kayani were taken by their parents who fled from an emergency pickup order by DCF. Kalani and Kayani have been missing since June 14th, but were last seen on June 9th in 2023 in Leahy Acres in Florida. Kalani has black hair and brown eyes. She's about a foot tall and weighs 15 pounds. Kayani has brown eyes and brown hair, and she weighs about eight pounds. Mm. Their parents are Sasha Galvin, age 20, and Danielle Gomez, age 27. Sasha is a black female with black hair and brown eyes. She's 5'2 and weighs about 110 pounds. Daniel is a Hispanic male with black hair and brown eyes. He's 5'7 and weighs about 140 pounds. We will be posting pictures of both Kehlani and Kayani, along with pictures of Sasha and Daniel. If you have any information at all, please contact 911 or 1-800-843-5678 or contact the Lee County Sheriff's Office at 1239-447-1000. Rachel, tell them where they can find the pictures. Well, they're on our Instagram at Small Town Mysteries Pod. There it is. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. We're going to toss it over to Christine, who's going to get into the bulk of the episode for this week and uh, talk about the primary case we are focusing on today. So, Christine, over to you. I feel like a newscaster. I know. You sound like one, too. I, I feel like <laughs> that's, like, low-key what I was going for. I'm. You hit the – what is it? The nail on the head? That's the expression, right? I hit the head on the nail. <laughs> okay. So – Today, I am going to be talking about the murder of Catherine Ruth Malcolmson and Sarah Pryor. These cases, sadly, have very, very little information on them. A lot of the information that you find on websites are pretty much just the same thing, copy and pasted. So this one won't probably be a long one, but I think it's still an important one. And it's also a local one, getting some more Massachusetts cases in here. We are back on our local bullshit. Yeah, we're definitely going through a trend for our one-year anniversary. Just letting you guys know. Catherine was 16 years old at the time of her disappearance, and she lived in Hudson, Massachusetts. So, pretty close. Catherine was reportedly in good spirits on the day that she disappeared, as her brother had just graduated high school and her family was going to be having a big celebration later. So she was excited about that. And that was kind of the mood as she rode her bicycle to her part-time job as a supermarket cashier at the IGA, which is just a supermarket, on August 13th, 1985. She was going from Hudson to Stowe, Massachusetts to get to her job, which was only two miles away from her home. So Catherine never made it to the store, and she was never seen or heard from again. Initially, authorities believed that she was a runaway, and her case was classified under that type of classification. I hate that. It is difficult because 
especially with the rhetoric about like if you don't start the search for a missing person within a certain amount of time that you know you're less likely to find them and then it's like well then she just ran away she'll be back and it's like yes yeah, so you're not going to start the search within the recommended amount of time you're going to decrease the odds of finding her because you're assuming she's a runaway it's it's just a lose-lose situation for everyone mm-hmm. yeah and her family like many other families didn't believe this to be the case she like i said was in really good spirits that day she was also going to get the first paycheck from her job so she was reportedly really excited about that because i remember that feeling when i was like 16 years old that is a milestone a milestone i know got my first paycheck from my first job cashed it out at the store because you could do that and bought Mm -hmm. myself a pair of shoes i remember i still got my first check when it was like an actual check and not just like direct deposit too yeah i my well christine and i had the same first job and Mm -hmm. um they only did paper checks. By the time I left, you could sign up for direct deposit, but I never did because it was like, oh, I'll just go in and get my paper check. And then now it's like not even a thing. And then so later on, authorities did admit that it was unlikely that Catherine had left on her own accord. There is no information that I could find on any type of search for her. So I'm not really sure how intense that was. But a whole two years after her disappearance in 1987, Her bicycle was located by a motorist in a wooded area along Gleasondale Road off of Route 62, and that was in Hudson. The person who found the bicycle didn't have any suspicions about it. Like, he just thought it was a bike someone had left around, so he gave it to a friend. But then when the friend heard about where he found it and kind of like the circumstances around it his mind went to um Catherine or some people called her Kathy yeah good Samaritan yeah so his his friend called the police because he's suspicious <laughs> I feel like we've talked about this before like what to what extent would you cover for a friend if you thought they may have done something criminal and I feel like we've all decided we would absolutely rat each other out because we don't mess with that but this is like one of those circumstances where it's like oh on the surface, it's like, oh, you just found a bike. But then it's like, uh, something else going on here. That is such a good gut reaction to call the police on that. And you know what? You really, at that point, you do risk your friendship. Because imagine your friend gets taken in for questioning and has nothing to do with it. He just literally just found the bike. Yeah, I don't think that like his friend was ever questioned or really like he just mm-hmm. found a random bike off the side of the street and was like, oh, this looks like something that maybe whatever his name could use because he likes to bike and then Mm -hmm. gave it to them like I don't think that his friend ever was like oh you did it I think he just heard about the area that he found it and he was like Mm -hmm. oh there was a missing person case potential like murder that happened a couple years ago and it was Mm -hmm. like around that same wooded area so like maybe I should go to the police and see if this connects less of I'm going to report my friend because he's suspicious and more of I'm going to report this bike that my friend found because that is suspicious. Yeah. Like, I don't know if his friend was like hiding anything or thought anything of it. In the natural course of investigation, the friend would be like questioned. But that's also one of those things where it's like, if you know you haven't done anything wrong, get a lawyer and speak to the police because you know you've done nothing wrong, but get a lawyer. Yeah, true. Yep. Always get a lawyer. That's not legal advice, but get a lawyer. Uh, And then so after that, they obviously searched the area. Um, Searches were delayed a few times due to inclement weather. When they did conduct the searches, no evidence relating to Kathy's whereabouts was discovered. 
a whole seven years after her disappearance is when her family eventually like held a memorial service for her and erected a tombstone at the family burial plot in Dover, um, New Hampshire. Mm. Authorities actually believe that this case is linked to the murder of Sarah Pryor, a nine-year-old girl who vanished on October 9th, 1985 from the same area as Catherine. There is also not much information regarding this case, a little bit more than Catherine's though. So on a beautiful day in October, Sarah had gone out for a walk outside of her family's home in Wayland, which is only around 20 minutes from Stowe. She was last seen walking north along Route 126, but was never seen again. Sarah had just moved to Massachusetts six weeks prior with her parents and her 16-year-old sister, as well as her 17-year-old brother. Search efforts were unsuccessful, and eventually the case ended up going cold. After 13 years of searches, tips, and false sightings, Sarah's bone fragments were found and identified using DNA technology, and she was laid to rest on January 13, 1998. That would have been her 22nd birthday. Mm. That's always so devastating when it ends up being the birthday. Mm-hmm. At least, like, I, I, we talk about this all the time, and obviously, like, we can't define closure for every single family. But at least finding her remains and being able to put them to rest, I feel like has to bring some kind of relief. Mm. I would agree. I will touch on closure a little later, too. (laughs) Oh, boy. So the prime suspect in both of these cases is John Robert Wordy. It's always the guys with three names. Have you guys noticed that? Like, I, I just... This is like mostly an aside, but it I feel like you guys will think it's funny. When I took like a fiction writing class and I wrote a short story that like involved a crime, I just instinctively gave the criminal three first names. Like Yeah. <laughs> a three a three name layout and they were all like names that could have been first names and I was like, "Yeah, that's just the way it goes with the criminals. They always have three names." I don't know. It, it, it just every time they always have that extra name thrown in there. Yeah, it's happened a lot on this podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's like them or maybe it's the news reports on their middle name. Like just in order – because I feel like John Wordy is maybe too much of a common name. I wonder about that too. Like have you always gone by right. your full name or is it the news distinguishing you? Like I always think about John Wayne Gacy and then you compare John Wayne Gacy to like John Wayne, the actor. And it's like, yeah, well – in this circumstance, obviously, he would have been John Gacy, but putting the Wayne in there makes it a little more like, oh, because then, you know, he has the same name as a celebrity and John yeah. Wayne Gacy. And you're like, oh, my God, that's like John Wayne. That sensationalizes it. So I feel like that that one I want to put on the part of the media. But I feel like in general, I have no idea. Me neither. It just would seem like a huge coincidence if all of these people happen to use their middle names right? all the time. Like, I don't know anyone who actually goes by their middle name in regular conversation. Like, I'm not looking at Rachel and calling her Rachel Sarah. Like, that's weird. I feel like I know some people that go by their middle name, but just their middle name, not their first name. Right. Mm, Like, as a substitute. Yeah. Not, like, both. Unless you have, like, a two-part first name. Yes. But that's different. Okay. So... Wordy had been convicted of the murder and rape of a 15-year-old girl in Texas, 
and had just returned to Massachusetts around the time of Catherine and Sarah's disappearances after having served 17 years in prison. He's not welcome here. Why was he here? He So he originally was here and Ew. then went down to Texas and then, yeah, came back up here. Yeah. We don't want you. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't. We don't welcome you. Mm -mm. So while on parole, Wordy was charged with the attempted kidnapping of a Newton woman at Knife Point. Um, he served five years in Massachusetts for that crime. And then he was transferred back to Texas for violating parole, uh, where he was blah, blah. sentenced to serve the rest of his life sentence. Hmm. So why was he yeah. not in prison when these disappearances occurred? That's a good question. Well, there also, was it, this is just going to get into the weeds a little bit. Was it life sentence with parole? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So he could still be paroled. Right. And while I think I've mentioned on the podcast before that, like, the actual length of a life sentence is not the person's lifetime. And so if you're young enough when you go into jail on a life sentence with parole, the odds of you being in there until you die are slim. Everyone's always like, yep, he'll die in prison. It's like, uh, no, probably not. It's, it's 25 <laughs> years, right? Yeah, it's it's I think it's less than that. It's not. Wow. It's not much. That's kind of crazy. I yeah. feel like we need to change the wording of that. A life sentence should be like until you die. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, life sentence without parole, you'll die in prison. But generally speaking, unless, you know, but then I feel like what happens a lot of the time, at least in cases that I've followed, is that the person is already older. So mm. even that 25 years, that would be a life sentence before they're eligible for parole. They're probably going to die in prison because they're old. But when you're younger, it's like a 25-year prison sentence. Yeah. It doesn't have the same impact, I feel like. Well, like, think about it. Like, if, like, let's say somebody commits a crime when they're in their early 20s, they can get out in their 50s, which is still, you still have half your life left. Plenty of time to reoffend if you are so inclined. Yeah, so I didn't actually ever see his actual age anywhere, but I know that in 2022... He was, if I did the math, he would be like 77. Mm -hmm. So I think he was pretty young when he committed these murders. Yeah. Yeah. And had these charges brought against him because mm -hmm. what? That would make him, this happen and he would have been like in his 20s or early 30s. Yeah. So that's, you can serve a life sentence with parole and then be out of prison and still be in like your 60s. Yeah. Like I said, the murders happened close together and they were both circumstantial evidence both like placed him around the same area as where they occurred. Hmm. So Wordy has denied killing Sarah Pryor and Catherine Malcolmson. But like I said, he was in the area and he had a job installing playground equipment in the region. He was also unable to account for his whereabouts on either of those days when the two girls had failed to come home. Uh, how was he allowed to have that kind of job? I don't know. They didn't do a background check. <laughs> Thank God there's been like more laws put into place because I like to believe that today you wouldn't be able to get a job like that. Literally because you a can't job be near children. Playground equipment. Yeah, no, that's fucked up. I feel like that totally would be within a hundred feet of a school. Yeah. So yeah, no, that that's questionable. I literally we talked about this last week too. Is it the Adam Walsh Act right? It was original, just so I can give you guys some uh, background. It was originally for Adam Walsh. Um, I don't know like too much about him, but he was a child who was raped and murdered. And it put in like level of sex offenders. So you know how like you have like a level three, level two, level one to help kind of group 
how awful the heinousness of their crimes yeah so this part is horrible but for a long time every three years sarah's mother family and friends had to actively fight against his parole so like every three years they would have to write letters and think about this like horrible person who committed this horrible act likely um against their daughter and fight against him that's just horrible i feel like this came up a lot with the boston bombing trial um, a few years back where people were debating the impact on the families of the victims in a life in prison sentence versus a death sentence. And I just remember at the time it was um, the little boy who died, Martin Richard, his family didn't want a death sentence because there would be a mandatory appeals process and then they would be expected to be at all of those hearings, make impact statements um and basically rehash this traumatic incident for like decades to come because death row Mm -hmm. is a process there's just no time to heal right and i remember at the time them releasing a statement saying that they wanted life in prison without parole because there would be less of that constant reminder from like through the court system at the very least um but you know life sentence with parole you have parole hearings. And then if you want this person to stay in prison, if you don't want this person to go free, you got to get up there and you got to make these statements. And like, and it's so similar in the sense that these people are not given the space or time to heal, no. even though this person's in jail and serving time for the crime that they committed. There's no space or time to heal for the families of the victims. And by the time you start to like scab over, it's just peeled off again. Right. You you make it three years and, you know, maybe it's not the first thing you think about every day when you wake up and maybe you can function mostly normally again. And then you get a notice in the mail that his parole hearing's coming up and would you prepare a statement? And you're just like, well, it's all back, you know, I, just a devastating process for the families of victims and also for surviving victims. It, this is true in cases of where people don't die. Yeah. I know of somebody who she was raped like years back and her rapist was up for parole in September. So she ended up falling down a flight of stairs, which is one thing, but then she showed signs of having a stroke, but there was no actual evidence of that. So it was something called conversion disorder, which is basically, it's a psych disorder. So it's like something that's so traumatic can mimic symptoms of an actual illness so she was like showing signs of a stroke like wow one-sided weakness stuttering which is not super normal for a stroke and that's why it's a little bit different but still like just because of this person's parole coming up yeah that just shows you like how emotionally impactful these things are and devastating right re-traumatization of victims is so baked into like law enforcement procedure and criminal procedure in general like this is you know this obviously being a great example but she was actually anti-rape kit because it's traumatizing yeah it re-traumatizes a victim within like 72 hours of a rape that they have to be invasively inspected no one wants to do that um and then also the kits they sit untested for 
an average of six years. Okay, that's a whole nother thing. That's that's ridiculous. Like that's ridiculous. No, so it's it's the combination. It's yeah. it's the re-traumatization for the lack of results. That was her issue with it. And she was like, if these tests were actually being used to recover evidence in a timely manner, that might be one thing. But re-traumatizing a victim like that and then just letting the evidence sit and never get tested and never getting this person closure is unacceptable. And it was like the first time I'd really thought about that like re-traumatization aspect of like the criminal process and how like you're the victim. They're investigating on your behalf and you're still going to be re-traumatized and it's probably not even going to help you. I think it's like obviously depends on the circumstance and Mm -hmm. what the person wants. Right. So I just looked it up and CBS News examined four cities that tested for 28,000 rape kits and only 1% resulted in a conviction. It does seem Mm -hmm. low. But I do think like they can be more helpful if, for example, you know for a fact like who it was. Right. And you just need the DNA to like confirm it. And if that's something that you want to do and you like want to put that person Mm -hmm. behind bars potentially, then do that. But that's an interesting conversation. But this was the ninth time that they had to go through this for his parole. Nine times? Mm -hmm. That should be illegal. Like there should be some kind of thing put in place for that because that's not okay. No. I feel like there should be a cap. Yeah, 100%. There should be a cap. Like if you don't get parole within the first 10 times, well, you're SOL. But that's not how it works. And then sadly, I couldn't really find a lot of information about Kathy from her family. I could find some about Sarah from her family, um, but it was mostly talking about their feelings regarding her case and um, how they feel now, like years later. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about that, about what I could find. Barbara Pryor, Sarah's mother, had been called by someone, um, she was saying, in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice in 2022. Um, And she kind of assumed it was him being up for parole yet again. But it actually wasn't. It was them notifying her of his death. So he did die, thankfully. For the family, actually, it wasn't as black and white as, like, he died. This is amazing. Like, that's kind of what they thought it would be like. But her daughter, Meg, who is Sarah's sister, said, the assumption was that I'd feel only relief when he died, but it was it was far more complicated than that. And saying that any sense of relief was overwhelmed by grief. She also said, it was surprising how much grief came with it. The sadness and anger. I don't believe in the concept of closure. I don't believe it happens. It's more just learning to live with the new reality and have some acceptance of it. I think that's a good way to put it. I I like that. We've talked a lot about closure recently, Mm -hmm. and I think that's kind of accurate as to like how I've I've been trying to vocalize it feeling like, like just kind of accepting it and living with it instead of like, you know, this thing is over and done and I'm at peace with it. You know, like I don't think that's realistic for a lot of families. Agreed. But I think it's one of those things of like it limits your mind trailing to a bunch of things. Like, you know what I mean? So at least like Mm -hmm. you have some kind of like I know what happened rather than A, B, C or D could have happened, which like at least that that has to help your anxiety and stress at least a little bit. It's not going to take it away and you're never going to get that person back. But Mm -hmm. But I feel like any amount of relief 
counts as relief. Yeah. So John Wordy, whose entire life was spent ruining the lives of others, lived to 77, which was more than eight times longer than Sarah. Jesus. A girl who never harmed anyone or anything. I hate that. I hate that. He died of natural causes. She died the most unnatural way you could. And I think it's really fucking unfair. And all of these cases are unfair and horrible. I agree. That absolute bastard did not deserve to live eight times longer than her and die a natural death. He did not deserve that. I don't want to get into this whole topic because I know it's a lot, but like, I want to believe that there is a hell because if he didn't have to suffer in this lifetime, he should have to suffer for the rest of eternity. Yeah, maybe if there's no afterlife, but perhaps one of our listeners believes in reincarnation, he could come back as like something unfortunate. I can't think of anything off the top of my head right now, but like, and he doesn't even deserve to be a fucking ant. I wasn't going to say, I actually was going to say an ant, but um, I was trying to think of like the lowliest thing I could think of, but it's not an ant. I was thinking of like a fruit fly. Yeah, a fruit fly. They only live for like 24 hours, don't they? I don't. My point being that this man deserves nothing good. And if he were to be reincarnated, it should be as the lowliest species of all the species. Single cell bacteria. Algae. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. I got one. Pond scum. Oh. That's actually a pretty good one, Kate. I like it. Right. It serves no purpose. It sucks. Smells. Is gross. No one likes it. Pond scum. Right? That just came to me. That just came to me. (laughs) Really proud of that. Okay. So this guy is reincarnated as pond scum. And he's just going to live on the side of a rock forever. And even the fish don't like him. Yeah. Here's to hoping. Okay. I can get behind that. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, that was my case. We can end on the pond scum. (laughs) Thankfully. (laughs) Well, thank you, Christine. That was super informative. Those were both local cases, but I was not familiar with either of them. Mm -mm. I haven't heard of either of them either. I was surprised by how little um, information I could find on both of them. Because I feel like more people would report on that if, like, there's two girls who go missing within a couple months of each other, you know? Right. Especially when we we talk on this podcast a lot about missing white woman syndrome. Mm Yeah. And so it's really interesting that this is an example of two missing white women. One of them nine years old. One of them very young. young. Both under mysterious circumstances that didn't get that kind of news coverage. Yeah. Which certainly happens. Well, do we think it has something to do with the year? Because this was in, what, 85? But I, I feel like we've, be. Co- we've covered be. other cases from this time period when there's been extensive. Yeah. Like, right. Like it's been splashed on every magazine, newspaper across the country. Thank you, Christine. Thank you, Rachel, for covering our missing persons for this week. So at Small Town Mysteries Pod, we'll have the pictures and information on the missing persons that Rachel covered thanks thank you guys this was a good episode that was good some good discussion there yes i love a good discussion episode well thank you for listening thanks for tuning in catch you next tuesday catch you on the flip come spiral with us next week bye